frankly, we're just overusing these people. I mean, there's only so many, so much you can push people before they break, and essentially we've done that throughout the entire force. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Recent reports have shown there's a problem with the U.S. Navy. Too many missions, not enough ships and sailors. Readiness has suffered, and it cost 17 lives last year because of accidents. In separate incidents, two destroyers, the John McCain and the Fitzgerald, crashed with other ships. Dave Majumdar is the defense editor for the National Interest, and he's here to help us understand the state of the Navy. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Can we start off by uh, just asking, how dire is the situation for the Navy? And can you talk us through the accidents? It is a pretty bad situation. There's no disguising this. I mean, but it's a problem that's been in the making for a long time. And essentially, it comes down to we have a Navy that has shrunk over the past 25 years, down to like 276 ships, down from like more than 300. And... uh you know, you're still we're still pretending like it. You know, it's the same fleet size. I mean, it's still 100 ships deployed. That hasn't changed, but the number of ships in, in the fleet has changed. I mean, you know, it's gone down significantly, and it's just basically people are being uh, forced to do more work with less resources, and they're tired. They're not getting the training they need. You know, for example, in the case of both the Fitzgerald and the McCain. Uh, the problem is that these guys are, you know, really good at uh, their jobs in terms of like, you know, warfighting type requirements, right? Essentially, uh, Fitzgerald, if I recall, was was a ship that's actually pretty much like renowned for its uh, subhunting capabilities. I mean, it was uh, kind of like your go-to ship, but I mean, technically, it wasn't certified to do that job. I mean, because they just didn't have the time to do it because they're not uh, they're out getting deployed, especially those forward deployed naval forces out of Japan. They're, they pretty much get the call right now. They go out there, they do their thing, and they're getting a lot of on-the-job training with, like, uh, you know, right there on the fleet, uh, you know, doing real-world missions, but they're not necessarily – they're tasked so heavily. They're not getting the training that they need to get their certifications done and especially stuff that's just routine stuff, like things that you just don't even think about, housekeeping stuff like navigation and just sea-keeping. They're not doing and uh, they're not doing it because they just don't have enough time. There's 24 hours a day. You have so many people. You have so many resources to do it, and just not. And that's what happened. I mean, these were both accidents, but uh, you know, accidents that could have been prevented with proper training and had these uh, crews known how to, you know, do the job, right? But the problem is also, you know, and this is just even more recently, uh, they've been finding that these new officers don't have. The like they're not being properly trained to begin with. Like the surface warfare school is uh, not producing officers who are necessarily that well trained to do this job in the first place. Just basic skills of navigation and like sea, uh, seamanship. Uh, they're not um, like uh, there's a there was a study that uh, they did and uh, out of like 164 officers, like uh, 27 only passed with no concerns. Like 108 passed some concerns and uh, there was like another 30%, uh, like 29 people who had significant issues, like, and just doing basic things like navigating a ship and avoiding collisions and 
and especially uh, like they they do well in simulators a lot of times. But then if they're pushed the you know like when they're pushed to, like with the taxing scenario, they just don't know how to respond properly because they're not being trained. And a lot of this is because in order to do the insane redness temple that the, the Navy has been going with for like the past 25 years, I mean, remember like for a while, I mean, we were on challenge at sea and then Russia and China started coming back and, uh, you know, now we have to go to sea a lot more often. The Navy is taking sort of shortcuts in order to try to keep people out at sea a lot longer. And that's had a major impact, which is how you, you know, get these collisions. I mean, you know, because I mean, these are things that, People don't know the right, you know, the rules of the road for like how to operate at sea and whatnot. I mean, in the old days there used to be a uh, a school that you know you get like okay, like compared to like naval aviation, the submarines, right? Navy like surface ships don't get their crews don't get the same extensive level of training before you go to sea, right? For the first time, like for example, a naval aviator will go, you know, like you go through your flight training and intermediate flight training, advanced flight training. You get to like a uh, replacement, you know, like a, you know, like a rag or I guess a replete uh, replenishment squadron. You learn how to fly a uh, FA-18 or whatever, and it takes like it's a process that takes two years. And then, you know, once you get to the boat, like the carrier, I mean, you still you're you're like the low man on the on the totem pole. You have to learn from your uh, your flight lead and whatnot to get qualified as a flight lead, and then um, instructor pilot eventually, uh, you know, you go to Top Gun and whatnot. That takes a long, long time. Even just to get to the boat for your first tour, you're looking at minimum two years. Navy, uh, the Navy submarine guys have to go through the same sort of process. Like, there's a very extensive process. You have to go to nuclear propulsion school and whatnot, and you learn everything about uh, how to operate safely. Navy surface fleet doesn't have anything like that. They used to, and uh, I think it was 2003, there used to be something called a surface warfare officer, uh, division officers course, right? That was like roughly, if I recall correctly, 16, um, 16 weeks to learn the basics of how to operate your ship. They can discontinue that, and you know it was kind of a, frankly, I mean, dumb move. Uh, and then you know they were, they try to try to make it so that they'll learn on the job, and that just wasn't happening. And then after that, they kind of in 2012 they did a smaller course. It was like kind of a classroom-based thing to teach you the basics of seamanship. But even then, I mean, it has obviously has not been particularly effective. So this is what kind of led to those uh, collisions, this, uh, because, I mean, they didn't know what to do, essentially. So it sounds like they're undertrained, understaffed, and there's a leadership problem that seems yes. systemic. Yes. And they're massively, massively, massively overworked. I mean... That's, this, is, this leads to one of my questions is, uh, how much sleep are they getting? Not much. I mean, in the Navy, they're, they actually almost seem to take pride in, like, being tired all the time. What do you what do you mean by that? Like, I mean, like, there's a certain perverse pride in, like, you know, working these, um, these like, these sort of, they have these shifts on, on the ship, right? They're, like, kind of six, uh, a six-hour-long watch. They stand watch for, like, six hours, and they get, like, another six hours to sleep and whatnot. And it has no real, you know, correlation to, like, you know, the realities of, like, this, you know, like, uh, time of day and whatnot. This is a ship kind of has its own time. But it's like you're not getting the kind of sleep that you need. You don't, you're being pushed to the limit. You're continuously overworked, right? So it's just, you know, people can't operate like that. Is that something that the Navy's taking seriously? Something that they're actually going to do something about? So, yeah, yeah, they're they're trying. I mean, uh, so there's a, about a year, I guess, uh, this November, December. Yes, I think it was November. I think it was November. Um, it, it, was, it was last year. They, uh, there was a report that came out. There's like uh, a massive report that they kind of systemically went through the, both the collisions 
of um, you know, like uh, the Fitzgerald, the um, the McCain, Porter, and uh, there's been a couple other ones, right? And basically, they uh, went through this and they found that this has been a systemic problem of like just uh, as the fleet's gotten smaller, uh, standards have slipped. They're trying to just push these guys a lot harder than they've ever had uh, before, and it's just they're they're pushing people, and uh, you know they're not getting trained, people are not getting rest. I mean. Uh, a lot of times, you know, like people come off of shore tours and go directly to the ship and they're not uh, properly even trained. I mean, like you have an XO who might be on the shore for like four or five years and then he's going directly to the boat, not being recertified to do anything, you know, things like that. So what kind of demands are actually being put on the Navy now? Uh, you said that there are always 100 or so ships at sea and... Um, are there more missions now than there have been traditionally, or it's just the same, but there are fewer ships to do it? So, okay, it's an ideal world. The Navy did a force structure study, and uh, other think uh, there's like four or five think tanks did a study on this too, right? Uh, the fleet size should be around 355 ships uh, for what they want, what uh, all the COCOM demands are from around the globe. Uh, the fact is, we simply don't have that many. Even in 1999, when we had 333 ships, you know, we were deploying 100 vessels, and even then it wasn't enough. But since then, the fleet has shrunk. There's like, I think, 55, uh, if I know my math right, about 55 uh, fewer ships today than there were back then in 2017, right? I'm going to use those numbers because I, I just don't know how many we have now. It's, it always flexes a little bit, right? But we're still deploying about 100, uh, 100 ships, and uh, they're always, on average, uh, you know, these are always, you know, the numbers are in flex, but there are 100 ships deployed then, 100 ships deployed now, but uh, 55 fewer ships. Same number of missions, because, I mean, there's like a physical limit what what you can do with 100 ships, right? Ideally, they'll want to do even more now, because, I mean, 1999, we were not seeing the kinds of threats we're seeing, right? 999, we were still in a peacetime capacity. You know, 9-11 hadn't happened yet. Russia was, uh, you know, and basically... Like the Soviet Union, uh, former Soviet Union was a complete dumpster fire, and then, and then uh, China was uh, still, you know, not anywhere near, you know, like ready to challenge us. So I mean, yeah, it's gotten a lot more intense in terms of like peer level threats are out there. Then 2011, uh, sorry, 9/11 uh, happened. Then now you're seeing like this, you know, like this uh, demand signal for like not necessarily the traditional mission, but still like a lot of stuff is going on. You're just running these ships into the ground, the crews into the ground. While you're, sh you know, you're shrinking the fleet because I mean the resources are going towards the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the counterinsurgency fight, and then you also see the rise of the Russian, the re you know, the rise of the Chinese and the resurgence of the Russians, and I mean the Russians aren't anywhere near, you know, what they used to be, but you know it's still a problem. I mean you're still dealing with the same hundred ships. I mean you know that you have that you can deploy, versus the need to have a lot more ships now, because I mean. Essentially, once the Cold War ended, I mean, we kind of, you know, like, uh, kind of thought, you know, hey, we're done. We don't need this many ships. We started cutting and cutting and cutting. Uh, we had a very structured, very disciplined method, you know, back when the Soviets were still around, because you know it was predictable. I mean, now it's not. So now we have a new challenger, and two new challengers really coming up, and we're now getting used to that. We have to basically go back to like proper discipline, getting people trained and rested and able to, you know, do things. I mean. Congress is uh, trying to do a couple things, uh, which is kind of split the responsibilities up. Uh, there's a there's a bill that's basically going through the House and the Senate, right? Basically, they want to um, split up some of the responsibilities of a surface warfare officer. Right now, we have very generalist people, right? So compared to like you know the British, who have very specialized people, they go through and they have uh, dedicated navigators, dedicated 
you know, warfare systems officers and whatnot. We just have people who do everything, you know. They're not – they're like a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And he's kind of trying to split them up uh, in this bill into um, two components. Like one's an engineering, kind of, you know, guy and one's like a, you know, like a uh, weapon systems and, uh, you know, just basically run the ship type of guy. So that could help, but, uh, you know, it's hard to say. What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. One thing I was wondering is when you talk about 1999 and the kind of threats that we were experiencing, you are not talking about al-Qaeda or ISIS, and now we're using aircraft carriers to constantly launch sorties um, regardless of – well, I mean, I guess it's just it's every day. It's not like the bombing of Kosovo or Bosnia or any of those things that were one-offs. But now the aircraft carriers work every day. So what's the impact there? People get tired. You uh, see this in the naval aviation community too, right? I mean, like um, there's, there's basically um, the Navy has been at war continuously now from 2001. And you're seeing this in the surface fleet. You're certainly seeing this in the uh, aviation side too because, I mean, if you look at the Hornet fleet, there's like maybe one-third of those airplanes are flyable and you give, you know, like, uh, at any given time, right? And this is because uh, not only are you flying them, I mean, a lot harder than they're ever designed to fly, right? I mean, you're flying a lot of sorties for over long durations. And, you know, over places you don't necessarily need an F-A-18 even, right? But, um, you know, nonetheless, we're doing it. The problem is that they're flying a lot of sorties. There's a limited pool of pilots. They're going to keep getting deployed over and over again. So, you know, like when you're flying like against uh, like over Afghanistan or it's like, you know, like where there's no real threat, it's just kind of uh, you're just kind of patrolling and waiting to drop something, right? I mean, you're not that's not really useful uh, training hours, right? You're burning a lot of airframe life just, you know, for, you know, for the sake of, you know, like burning airframe life. And then, uh, you know, like then you also have to keep up with training for everything else. And then the airplanes have to go through, you know, as you wear them out, you have to go through uh, depot and whatnot, keep them maintained. And uh, you also need spare parts. And uh, remember, hold the sequestration uh, thing hit, and uh, that disrupted. There was a very well-oiled machine of like getting these, uh, you know, aircraft into depot and repaired and fixed, and they didn't do that. So with, sequ- with sequestration and uh, all these like various uh, fits and starts for like the defense budget, I mean, there's been a lot of work stoppages and whatnot. So people got laid off at these factories and depots where you have to build these airplanes and fix these airplanes, and you got to hire them back. And people get very tired of that because you keep getting laid off. I mean, as a journalist, you you know, and I'm a journalist too, and the, we've had this situation too. We get laid off, and then we have to find another job, and then you don't want to come back necessarily to the other job that you just lost if they call you back, I mean, or you get out. I mean, the same thing happens with these guys, right? You're like, you know, they have families to feed and whatnot, and they're like, uh, you know, we're out, uh, you know, if they get laid off, right? So you lose that guy, and you have to try, try a new guy to replace that. And so you see this disruption all over because of inconsistent budgeting and uh, – this is truly this is a freaking tempo that people are operating at, right? So, you know, basically a lot of this is like stuff the Congress has to fix, like a consistent budgeting and just a you know steady stream of money, and also just like uh, 
frankly, we're just overusing these people. I mean, there's only so many, so much you can push people before they break, and essentially we've done that throughout the entire force. Corruption's a problem too, right? I mean, I was thinking specifically of the Seventh oh, Fleet. Oh, Fat Leonard. Yeah, absolutely, Fat Leonard. Yeah, that is an issue. I mean, uh, but I mean, that will, you know, now that it's been found, that it's going to be fixed, right? I mean, like this isn't something the Navy condones or anything. It's just uh, people are, you know, greedy and they do dumb things, and a lot of people will go to jail. And uh, once that dead wood has been cleared out, I mean, you get better people in there, hopefully. But yeah, you have to be on the lookout for it. I mean, we're fr we're certainly better in the United States here than. A lot of other countries, but corruption happens. I mean, how much that corruption is eaten into uh, breadness, I don't know. I mean, like obviously they're giving sweetheart deals in certain cases to certain people because of uh, the benefits they're getting in return. But I mean, I have to I have to think this like compared to the overarching like the entirety of naval operations. I mean, this is like kind of a blip. You know what I mean? Overall, I mean, yeah, you're overcharging people, and whatnot. I mean, that, that does obviously cut into it. But I mean, it's not in the grand scheme of things that much damage comparatively. I mean, it's not good, but it's not, you know, it doesn't really necessarily impact uh, the overarching greatness of the fleet. So it's not the same phenomenon as, you know, the world-famous $1,000 toilet seats and things like that. You're talking about something – it's not systemic. No, no. This is like just outright, like, uh, just outright criminal, you know, criminal behavior on the part of those officers that are involved. Uh, yeah, they absolutely need to go to prison and uh, be court-martialed and, and whatnot. But yeah, the thousand-dollar toilet seat is just really a byproduct of this um, this very um, difficult and arcane uh, procurement system that the U.S. You know, and this is not a Navy problem. This is a entire DoD-wide problem that needs to be solved. Like there's this requirements process and uh, and uh, acquisitions process that is just incredibly difficult and slow to work with. And, uh, you know, like anything that does get uh, through the process is inevitably massively over budget or late or, you know, and actually usually both. And uh, so, you know, like a lot of stuff you end up getting is like out of date and uh, late to need. And going forward, I mean, you know, frankly, I mean, the way technology is advancing in the civilian sector and, uh, you know, and other forces, I mean, you can't do that anymore. So, you know, like you see a lot of people trying, you know, like, like the Air Force, for example, is uh, building the B-21 bomber and, you know, like outside even the regular acquisitions process, it's done, they basically bypassed it. And you can do that because it's they put under a special project, you know, rapid uh, capabilities office type thing. And, uh, you know, I think people in more of the services are looking at doing things like that just because, the process is completely broken at this point. There's, uh, if you do get something through the requirements process, it takes for freaking ever. And then, uh, you know, by the time you build it, uh, with all these like uh, technologies uh, that you're developing, it's late to need, and then it's not adaptable necessarily. So, you know, like we need to buy stuff faster and get it out the field faster, otherwise it's going to be obsolete. And it's just, you know, no one's really figured out a good way of fixing it. What about bringing back some of the old ships out of retirement to bulk up the fleet? It's an idea. It could work, but uh, remember, those ships are put out to pasture for a reason. I mean, old ships are hard to maintain, and this is going to be a problem for us going forward to keep the ships we have on the fleet uh, longer, too, because an older ship is much, much, much more maintenance-intensive. So, you know, like the same thing with airplanes. I mean, the longer you keep them in service, the harder it is to fix them. You know, stuff breaks, stuff gets corroded. I mean, it's just they need more work. It's like if you kept your car in service for years and years and years, you're going to have to keep putting more and more work. At some point, it's not worth it. So if they want to expand the fleet, you know, you're going to have to keep your existing ships 
in service uh, longer, and they're going to have to do you're going to have to do more work on it. And then uh, you're going to probably buy new ships faster. But then bring back older ships. I mean, some of them are the newer ones that just got retired. You may be able to bring them back fairly easily, and uh, but it's still going to cost you money, right? I mean, you still have to refurbish those ships and then get new electronics on board, new weapons. I mean, you know, like it may or may not be worth it. You have to do a cost analysis on that and see if it's actually uh, worth, you know, if the juice is worth the squeeze, if you will, right? There, there's no reason you couldn't do it, but it's going to cost you money. It's just to figure out whether the, that uh, that cost is worth the uh, payoff you get because you may not be able to get that much service life out of these, uh, you know, like these old ships, right? And it may not deliver a useful capability. And I think we have this... Uh picture in our heads of these ships that are ready to go that are just anchored off a coast somewhere and and what you're saying makes sense that is of course not exactly what we're talking about um okay so i have a related question though so even if we did put more ships out to sea now however we did it um are there enough sailors to go around and are they having trouble getting bodies onto the ships well, you're going to have a lead-up time, right? Right now, we do not have enough sailors, no. Uh, you're going to need more people. And, uh, you know, sailors are not free. You're going to have to pay them and, you know, like train them and everything else and house them and feed them and clothe them. So that's, uh, you know, and also the retirement issues and health care and all that sort of stuff, right? Personnel is our single biggest cost for the DOD, right? Uh, and also then VA, don't forget about that, because that's also a cost the National Treasury is uh, you've got to take care of these guys afterwards, right? Because they also get benefits for education and health care even after they leave. So it's not just uh, simply uh, you know, a DOD expense, it's a uh, VA expense and other things too. So there's that. So you're gonna, there's going to be a little bit of a ramp time, because people, you can't just like uh, you go grab some guy off the street uh, like you did in the old days and, you know, when you had press gangs and uh, say, guess what, you're now in the Navy. You gotta take that guy and then train him to actually do what his job is. And some of this, you know, like a lot of this takes time. And some of the training, as it turns out, might need to be revamped so that people actually know what the hell they're doing when they're actually out there, right? So it's gonna take some time to, you know, like spool it up. It's not magic, I mean, but neither is uh, building new ships or even bringing ships back from uh, the boneyard, right? Is uh, you know, all these things take time, and it will take many, many, many years. Even if you magically uh, tripled the Navy budget or the hell, the entire Defense Department budget, and you want to like uh, field a fleet much larger in like another two years, it is physically impossible to do that. I mean, it could take decades. I mean, I think the earliest uh, they're looking at for getting at least to part of the way there is like 2035, right? This is going to be well past the Trump administration, you know, like even if he survives for two terms. I mean, this is like, you know, a trajectory that is this this will be beyond his uh, era and beyond the next president's era too. I mean, like it's a, it's this is like a uh, long-term thing. You can't the none of this is uh, happens on a dime. Speaking of dimes, how much yeah. do you think all this costs to get it, to get the navy somewhere near ready, quote unquote? Well, billions of dollars. I mean, it's hard to say how how much money they need because I mean, like uh, we frankly, I don't know. I don't know how um, how um, deep the problem is, right? Because I mean, you know, like they're still reviewing. I mean, if the the report from like the memo from like two days ago uh, shows, I mean, there's a lot deeper problem out there in terms of training than uh, we we even realize. The shipbuilding stuff is more quantifiable, tens of billions of dollars easily, because frankly, right now, we don't have a shipbuilding account that uh, can get you to 355 ships. Remember also, there's Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine. These uh, submarines, which we must build because part of our strategic nuclear deterrence, they're extremely expensive. I mean, 
like extremely expensive. Like um, I forget the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's like something like five billion dollars per boat. Uh, not kind of the first boat, which is much more expensive because it's a new ship, right? But, you know, we absolutely must build 12 of them if we maintain their current nuclear posture, right? So that has to be built. That's uh, You can't avoid that. That's going to come out of somewhere. And, uh, you know, like that means if you build that, if you keep the same budget, you can't build the same number of aircraft carriers, same number of surface ships and whatnot. So you have finite resources and finite, you know, number of ships you want to build. So that has to be spaced out and done. So if you plus up that, and you also have to look at industrial capacity, how many can these shipyards actually physically build? Uh, a lot of that stuff is now gone from the 1980s, right? So um, you got to figure out how much money can the industry absorb. So minimum tens of billions of dollars. I can't really put it, to pa- you know, like uh, you'd have to get into like the nitty gritty if much more deeply than uh and no one has a crystal ball, frankly, but tens of billions of dollars, I think, is the best answer. And it might take years, like decades. Wow. Well, thanks very much, Dave. Thanks for uh, illuminating us on this. <laughs> Interesting to know just how few good answers there are. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review on iTunes. They tell us it helps other people find the show. No idea if that's true, but it does make Matthew and I feel good. Buck T wrote something that warmed our hearts recently. Great breadth of topics. Five stars. I really enjoy the long-form style of interviews. I'm often impressed with how interesting their guests are, especially when the topic isn't something I'd be attracted to initially. Well done. Thanks, Buck T. You can reach us at facebook.com slash warcollegepodcast.com. And we'll be back next week.